Hello and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and this week I am reviewing some of the music of John Carpenter, a filmmaker extraordinaire, great composer. He does, uh, you know, the music for his films. He even goes out and does concerts of that music, uh, along with, you know, guys like Hans Zimmer and John Williams have done concerts of their music, but he's more on the electronic side than he is the symphonic side. So it's a little bit different when he goes out and does his shows. Uh, Very interesting, though. Uh, Really, really talented guy in so many facets. It seems like the only thing he doesn't really do is act in his own films. But, you know, it's I I always find it interesting when somebody tries to do everything. You know, he's writing the music, he's he's directing it, he's editing, you know, he's he's overseeing all aspects of the production. And the one thing that I I always question, and maybe it's more so with people in independent film when they do that, because I'm sure he's working with people, he's doing test screenings, that sort of thing. But in the independent world, you get people that understandably it's hard to find people to partner with. It's hard to find people that you can trust that will keep a project on time, sometimes even when you're paying them. So I I understand that control. And then there's the artistic side of it that says, you know, no, I want the film to come out the way I intended it. No one's going to be able to do that. But me, I totally get that. However, you're potentially losing the one thing that you need more than anything else, which is perspective. If you're not at least, you know, screening the film with some people, doing some test audience research, or, you know, maybe bringing in, uh, you know, an editor to take a look at the film or something like that, it is so easy to make a shitty film because you're, you just, you have this thing in your head. And even if it's not quite coming out the way that you're seeing it in your mind, you tend to think it is because you know what you're doing. And it's always a good idea to partner with people to test screen to do that sort of stuff. So maybe not so much if if John Carpenter is doing it because his films seem to come out pretty well. But definitely in the indie world, I've seen quite a bit of that. I've worked on some of those films and and sometimes they are tough to get through just because the directors, they they don't necessarily want to listen to what's good or what's, you know, not working in a film. And as a composer you know, you have to carry the emotion, right? So if something's not working in a scene, the composer should be able to pick that out. And I've worked with some directors that are very receptive to feedback. And I've worked with other directors that are just, here's why I want the music to start. Here's why I want it to stop. And here's what I want it to be. They do not care what you think, even if you're giving them valuable information on your film or on their film. So those projects oftentimes do not come out well, but John Carpenter certainly knows what he's doing. He has made some great films. This this uh, best of John Carpenter, the essential John Carpenter uh, album that I'm going to be working off of today is in a really weird order. Um, I would have thought it would have started with Halloween or or The Fog, maybe. But it actually starts with uh, one of my favorite uh, movies of his, which is uh, Escape from New York, the 1981 classic. And we've got some great people in this film. I mean, Kurt Russell, Lee Van Cleef, Ernest Borgnine, Donald Pleasance, Adrian Barbeau. I mean, just a, a great cast of people. And it, it, the film in a, in a lot of ways seems kind of low budget, but I think that really worked for what they were trying to do. The futuristic stuff at the time, and I think about movies like, you know, The Running Man with their, you know, digital, here's how the military operates, graphics and and stuff. And I think that actually this was pretty advanced for those days for what they were working with. I thought they did a great job. I think the the low budget feel to it is great, especially once they're in New York. Um, even even though the scenes with the, the military base before Snake takes off for New York, um, 
really looks good. You know, it, it looks like kind of a futuristic, desolate world. We've really scaled back kind of place. And I just think they did such a great job with it. I remember watching this film and just being blown away. And I wanted to watch it right after I saw it. I just wanted it to start over. And I I can't remember how if I think I think it must have been on cable. Uh, it had to have been because I don't think we had a VCR when I saw it. And um, so, you know, sometimes those movies would repeat. But if it was on the movie channel, they would show R-rated movies throughout the day. If it was um, HBO, they only showed R-rated movies after night, as, uh, after I think like eight o'clock or something, as did Cinemax. So uh, if you were on the movie channel, you had a, a much better chance of seeing movies that you wanted to see played throughout the day uh, and not so much on on HBO or Cinemax. So, but I think this was like on HBO or something, um, either HBO or Cinemax, because I don't remember being able to watch it during the day. And I was really bummed because I just, like I said, as soon as it was over, I wanted to watch it again. It was such a great movie. Um, and you'll see, too, uh, some nepotism within uh, Carpenter's films because he's worked with Kurt Russell multiple times, Donald Pleasance, Adrian Barbeau. And, and I get it. You know, when you find people that not only are talented, but are committed to your projects that are professional, that show up when they're supposed to, that do the job they're supposed to do, that are great to work with, they're great to be around. You just want to keep those people on all of your projects. And whether they're people that are in front of the camera or behind the camera or just somewhere in the production, like those people become part of your team. So I totally get why he would kind of narrow down the scope of, of people he wanted to work with. And they they all, I mean, certainly bring in it every time. So you can't complain about that. But let's take a listen to the first song on the Essential John Carpenter. This is the main title mix from Escape from New York. It's, well, I should say main title mix one because there are two mixes of this song on the album. So I'll play this one first. So we're definitely talking, you know, early, early 80s, late 70s uh, synthesizers here. Um, I would imagine one of them was probably a Moog, if if not the majority of what he was working off of. But he was definitely doing some like MIDI programming. Everything was just perfect and solid and on the beat, very programmed. But uh, one thing that you'll notice, too, like it, there's no way a drummer would have ever played this because there is no hi-hat. There's nothing to keep the beat. There's a really weird snare that just comes in from time to time. It's it's an interesting piece of music, and it really works well for the film. But thinking in terms of like a drummer coming up with this and saying, yeah, I'd really like to just hit drums and not have anything to keep the the thing moving forward, like no hi-hat or ride cymbal or anything like that, very unlikely. Now, if I'm sure he does this in concert, and I'm sure the drummer probably mocks what he did on 
doesn't mock it like sarcastically, but mimics what he's doing here on the original song. But a drummer wouldn't have have opted to play it this way. He would have argued, I, I need to at least play a hi-hat or, or something, but I'm not hearing anything in this at all, which I've always thought left it a little bit awkward for me. Uh, and maybe that's just because I'm a drummer. But it's got a good feel to it. It's really simple. And, you know, a lot of his stuff is simple. And that's, in a way, what's cool about it. It's like just cool melody lines, cool rhythms, interesting tones. And that's how you make a John Carpenter song. Uh, but I love the mood of it. I like that it's not some, you know, grinding, harsh or really dark thing considering the the movie. It's almost a little bit more playful or lighthearted than you would expect it to be for a movie like Escape from New York. Um, had I been hired to compose for this film, I think I probably would have gone with something a little grittier, a little more, this is going to be kind of an action adventure type film. This is a really interesting choice, but I, and, and maybe it's just that nostalgia again, maybe it's just because I'm used to it, but I think it certainly works. Uh, I, w- I would love to kind of rescore the film with, with more like harsh music and see how it would be. But, you know, the thing that you know first is typically the thing that always works best for you. So I'm sure it's quite too late now. But in any case, it's it's a cool piece of music. It's really patient, which is great because the movie has like a real sense of urgency to it, right? He's, he's on a clock. He's got to recover the president and the briefcase, or at the very least, the briefcase and screw the president. And he's got to get back. So uh, you have that sense of clock is ticking, but you don't get that in this theme at all. You get a very relaxed, melancholy, almost like you're just watching watching it play out with other people. You don't feel like you're a part of it, which I think is why I would have opted more for something harsher or maybe even a little faster. Just something definitely that grinded more. And, and just because you want to you want to get that tension going in the audience, you want them to feel like, shit's about to go down. Not like, hey, you know what? I'm going to go into the kitchen and grab some potato chips. Can I grab you a beer while I'm there? Which is how the song feels. You know, it's a cool piece of music, but it's really interesting because I, I don't know how well it actually fits what what could have been done to bring about the film. Um, I think it would have made for good, maybe maybe good end credit music. But to have this be the main title is is really kind of an interesting thing. I don't remember it being played throughout the film, though. I don't think, as far as I remember, I, I don't think this was like a, a theme that repeated. I think it was really just like a main title theme and not like a Snake Plissken theme or something like that, because I honestly don't remember this playing anywhere else in the film. I may be wrong. It's been a while since I've seen it. But in any case, absolutely fantastic film. So there is a second mix. Uh, so I'm going to jump a- around a little bit on this um, just on the ones that have multiple mixes um, because this goes from song one to the next time it appears is song 15. So by then you're disconnected from how it sounded. So let's take a quick listen to the mix two from the main title of Escape from New York.
Oh, yeah, I like that much better. I think that is way cooler. Uh, I like it better without the helicopter. That seems kind of cheesy. But, you know, when it's when it's a film score, sometimes the sound design is is put into the music a little bit. So um, it's not too surprising as a film score piece. But I like this better. I think the mix is better. It sounds wider. Um, it's It packs a, be- a better punch, I think. Um, still the same issue with the drums, though. There's there's no hi-hat. There's nothing moving it along that way. But I did notice, too, those bells that are in there, like that that almost Christmassy kind of bell that just plays along with little bits of the melody. And I, I thought, wow, that's such an interesting choice. Uh, very common, I think, in film soundtracks this around this era, that little subtle things like that would be thrown in to just kind of thicken up the sound and enhance them. But... Um, yeah, I really, you know, when I think uh, action adventure movie, I don't think of like tinkly little holiday bells and things like that. I, I think it's a good piece. But again, I'm really kind of skeptical now that I think about it. And really, just just as I'm recording this now is coming to mind, um, how well this really fits the fits what could have been to build up tension for the film. Um, I think it's a cool piece of music as a standalone. But when put in conjunction with the film, I'm not so sure that I feel I feel as good about it as I did like 20 minutes ago. So uh, my life has completely changed. Uh, next up on the chopping block, ha, you'll see why I said that. Uh, probably not as funny as I just thought it was. Uh, Halloween, the 1978 classic, uh, one of his most famous films, certainly spun this whole series of Halloween films that are still happening. Uh, this year, we're supposed to get Halloween Ends with Jamie Lee Curtis returning as her role of uh, Laurie Strode. And, uh, well, you know, I, I, I didn't like the last one as much. I liked the one before it that she did, uh, as they were kind of taking it back to Halloween two on never happened. We're just starting from the end of Halloween one and here's where we are now. Uh, so it's kind of hard to get all those other things out of your head because there's so many other Halloween movies in between. Um, I'm not sure why they cut out or why they said they were cutting out Halloween two, because that was the continuation of the same night from Halloween. So um, that seemed a little bit weird to me. I haven't sat down and watched them in order to know whether that really was cut out of the timeline or not. Um, seems like it's it wouldn't have been. I don't, I don't know what the purpose of that would have been unless there was some something in the storyline that was problematic. And so they had to say, okay, we're going to have to take Halloween 2 out of the mix. That didn't happen. We're going from Halloween 1 to, I think it was H2O, I think was the was the first one with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis coming back. Um, uh, Daniela Harris did a great job in some of those interim Halloween movies. I thought she was fantastic. Um, yeah, so, some really great stuff in, in these films. So it's it's really neat to see how this has evolved. And it all started with this film. And honestly, I think the music played such a major role. I think in a lot of ways on this one, the the film itself really took a backseat to the, um, to the audio. There's definitely some very powerful images. There's definitely some things that, that stick in my head. Just thinking about, you know, looking out at the clothesline and, and seeing Michael there. And then he wasn't, uh, that has burned into my brain since I was just a wee thing. And I saw it when I was pretty young. Now, it came out in 78. I think I saw it, it would have been sometime, I would imagine, in the early 80s when it was released on Halloween night on television. So, you know, you've got commercials, you've got all the swearing and all the, you know, nudity and certain things are are edited out or, or you know, uh, fuzzed out, whether it be uh, for audio or video. Um and so it really limits, especially the commercials. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever watched 
let's say that you're watching an intense YouTube video, like uh, an extended trailer or, or just something, you know, like the history of ghosts or, you know, just whatever intense thing that, that you're watching on YouTube. And then they break in with an ad and you're like, ah, oh, man, like totally took me out of the mood. That's what happened when we had to watch this stuff on television. Like you're watching it. Michael Myers just comes in the room. Something's about to happen. You start screaming to the girl. He's behind you. He's behind you. And then Bounty Towels needs to talk about why you need to use the quicker picker upper as opposed to Scott Towels or any of the other brands that are out there. Just it just sucked. It really just sucked. Um but the struggle was real. That's what we had to deal with at the time if you wanted to watch the movie. And I remember, um, I think it was Halloween that my parents went and saw in the theater. And I, I remember my mom saying that, I mean, people were like literally getting sick in the theater. They were running out screaming or throwing up. And I, I mean, these movies, which are really tame to us now because we become so desensitized that it, it's it has to be extreme, right? Like it has to be like Saw or you know, uh, the Blair Witch or the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or something like really overdone for us to go, wow, that was really hard to watch or something. It's typically something that has to be very graphic or a very unique concept, like maybe the human centipede. Um, But in 1978, when Halloween came out, there was not a whole lot before this that people would have been desensitized by. I mean, you had what, like The Exorcist, I think, I can't remember which year Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original one, came out. It would have been somewhere around here, um, Friday the 13th. But like they all were around that same time. So it's not like you had decades of desensitizing like we have now. But Halloween was was a very, very important piece of art in the slasher film. And even I think just on, on horror movies in general, the way that he told the story, the way that it was scored with that tension in there. Um, just, just very, very important. So let's check out a little bit of the theme song from Halloween. See, that's that sense of urgency, that purpose, that I better get moving feeling that you get from this music that I was kind of missing now that I think about it from Escape from New York, that, you know, we got to go kind of thing. Uh, I love this piece of music. I think there's some real beauty in the simplicity of it, but there's also that he doesn't have to play a whole lot of low and dark notes to give you that creepy sense. The fact that he's playing 
you know, a little above the mid register is really fascinating to me that he can create that same sense that you would get if it was like a really dark and, you know, dark synthesizers and stuff. The synthesizers are in higher registers than you would expect too. Um, Very, very cool though. But there's something interesting about this piece when I was listening to it the other day that I don't know that I had picked up on before. In the beginning of it, when he's playing that root piano note, dun, 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 that one, dun, 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 you hear the key really striking. You know, you hear like a, a wood percussive sound every time he hits that note. But as the song progresses, you don't hear that anymore. And it's interesting because it sounds like he's striking the key just as hard. I don't feel like the note is any softer, but we're not getting that sound of the attack. We're not getting that wood hit. So I'm wondering if they mic'd the piano from the front or added it as a separate percussion track, but the playing is just so precise if that's the case. Uh, but I'm wondering if they mic'd the front of that and just put the volume up on certain parts of it where they wanted you to feel that tension and dropped it out where maybe subconsciously you're going, wait, something's wrong here. And you have no idea what it is because you're not going to go, oh, how come we're not hearing the wood on the piano anymore? You would never do that. I did that. But but that was what got me. So I'm going to play that part again. I'm going to let you first hear uh, the wood hitting. So see if you can detect that. It's a little bit more in my left ear than my right, which again, kind of gives me the idea that they might have mic'd, like physically mic'd the front of the piano or maybe, no, it couldn't have been inside because it would have been, it would have sounded completely different. Um, But maybe just mic that where they were just getting the wood and not the notes. I don't know how they would have done that without changing the volume, though, of the actual note, because you would hear it from the outside of the piano. I don't know. It's it's really weird. It, it, that leads me to believe almost like it was added on a separate track as a separate piece of percussion. Um, I don't know. But in any case, it's really interesting. So here, uh, see if you can hear the wood on the strike. Okay, hope you were able to hear that. Earbuds or headphones would probably help. If you're in the car, you might not be able to pick up on it as easily. And now here is the next part of the song where we lose that little wood knock. there it's just mysteriously gone so i i would be hard pressed to say it was added after the fact but i'd also be hard pressed to say i know how they did it um like i said if if they would have used another mic that picked up the actual like finger striking the key or, or the key striking down and hitting the the wood bass i don't know how the the melody of it wouldn't sound different, like why the the actual piano note wouldn't sound thicker there than when it drops out. So it's it's kind of mysterious to me, but whatever it was, a really cool technique. Uh, I really dig it. I think, you know, it seems like I noticed it at one point and kind of forgot about it. So maybe I did. I don't know. But in any case, what do you guys think? I'd be curious to know. Uh, that moves us on to our, well, actually, before we get to the next track, let's listen to the second mix of the theme music, which would be track 16 on The Essential John Carpenter. 
And the main difference here, obviously, is that they've added those quarter note bass drums. And what sounds like they're trying to simulate the uh, crunching of somebody stepping on dry leaves like you would have in the fall, right? And obviously very quickly because they're going boom, 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 step, 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 you know, kind of like they're chasing you. They're moving with purpose. A uh, really cool addition to to the piece. I really like it. Um, definitely worth checking out. I'm really glad they included both on the CD. I don't know where the placement of this one would be in the movie. I'm sure it was in there somewhere. Might have even been the end titles. I I, I don't remember, but uh, a really cool piece nonetheless. And that brings us to another piece from the film Halloween called Haunted House. I've always really dug this piece. It's it's probably my favorite in the film. It just has that, you know, you're somewhere creepy, but you're kind of feeling like you're confident, but then you feel like there's someone watching you, but then you feel like you're safe, but the, you still kind of maybe like you're convincing yourself you're safe. It just gives off that kind of vibe to me. And a, another one that's just, it's very simplistic, the piano, I mean, that could be like the opening, it, it actually kind of reminds me to the opening theme of, I think it's Days of Our Lives, maybe it was The Young and the Restless, I don't remember, but one of those soap opera themes, um, just very simple, and then uh, very simple notes on the synthesizer with a little bit of backing, but it it has that, just that right feel for a movie like this, and uh, another absolutely fantastic job. Uh, really dig the way he writes, I have to say. And his all the movies of his that I've seen, I've very much enjoyed. Um, Christine, sort of, we'll get to that. Uh, but next up, we've actually got the end title from Starman.
I like this theme compared to the other ones. It definitely feels more uh, orchestral, even though we're hearing, you know, the synthesizers doing it. But that feels like, you know, that synth of brass. I could I could see that being actual brass or, or strings even or a combination of, of the two with some percussion. There was an interesting uh, double hit on the percussion at the beginning that wasn't repeated that I could hear. But uh, yeah, it's it's a really cool piece. It, it definitely feels very cinematic and very theme oriented. You know, I could see that being like, uh, you know, even though the entertainment tonight theme, I think was kind of upbeat. I could see something like this, you know, for for that or for like a new show or something. But uh, this, of course, is the 1984 film Starman starring Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen. Karen Allen, you might know from uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And uh, also, uh, Jeff Bridges would uh, you know do Tron, which is a very uh, very eighties uh, movie, very cool. And uh, yeah, it was a, it, I, I've only seen it once, and it was a very long time ago, so I don't remember much about it. I remember I thought it was a good movie, uh, nothing particularly memorable about it. But you know, I, you know, how many movies do you see over the course of your life, and you're not going to remember all of them. Um, but I didn't dislike it; that I know for sure. So we're going to go with that. <laughs> Uh, but there is, interestingly, uh, another version of this end titles from Starman Simp, which I'm going to guess stands for Symphonic. Let's check that out. Well, there you go. <laughs> I did say that that could uh, be brass or strings or a combination thereof, and, and we definitely got one of those. Uh, I like it. I, I, I think it sounds good. Um, it doesn't really suit John Carpenter for me, though, to be in the movie. I think I, I like it better with the synthesizers because that just kind of really fits his style back at this time. Uh, very good piece, though. Uh, I, I like the orchestra edition. I think it sounds nice. But for me, I would probably choose the synth over that. Uh, I think we'll do one more song on this episode, and this one is going to be from one of my absolute all-time favorite movies, would definitely be on my Desert Island list if there was such a thing that could actually happen. Uh, this is called Pork Chop Express.
And of course, that was the Porkchop Express from the 1986 movie Big Trouble in Little China. Man, I love this movie. Stars Kurt Russell, Kim Cattrall, James Hong, Dennis Dunn. Just an, an absolutely phenomenal movie from start to finish. I'm really sad that it it didn't do better in the theater, but like so many movies, it found an audience after the theatrical release. Of course, you know, it really helps that uh, rentals and things were were starting to to become pretty big, I would imagine, by this point. I don't know number-wise where it was at, but it was not uncommon to rent a, a couple of movies for the weekend, or you could go to places where you could get five or six movies for a couple of bucks and, you know, rent them for two or three days. Um yeah, then you had to make sure that they were rewound. Otherwise, they would charge you a fee. And sometimes they would try and charge you a fee even if you had rewound them and then argue with you that you didn't. And of course, you couldn't prove it because you didn't know until you went to write your next tape that they even did that. I had them try and charge me uh, full price for a video one time because they said I never returned it. I'm like, I went home and watched it and returned it four hours later. I put it in your bin. If you guys lost it, that's not my fault. I think that was the day I canceled my Blockbuster account because I refused to pay for that. I turned it in. Um, not my fault if they couldn't scan it right. But this is just a killer movie. Absolutely killer movie. The action, the comedy, the fantasy of it all is just uh, just amazing from start to finish. If you've never seen this movie, uh, what are you doing? Go check it out. It, it is definitely one that is highly, highly worth watching. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to wrap this podcast for this week. I will be back in the future following up on these songs where we have a few more to go, a few movies that we haven't touched on yet. John Carpenter's done a lot of work in his life, no doubt about that. So thank you for joining me for this week on this episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. Hope you guys are having a great week. I'll see you next week. Cheers. Cheers.